0: Hey, Nathan. I mean, Tommy. Where's Nathan? (laughs) Nathan is out doing
1: bigger, better, and more fun things and sitting in a podcast studio today. He's checking out some brand new cars so you get the lesser podcast host.
0: Yeah, so today it's me and my son, Tommy, because Nathan, like Tommy said, is out actually on the new Volvo. uh, What's the little guy? 30? Yeah, he was just checking out the new electric
1: Volvo, but that, I think today, Nathan is checking out something even cooler. He's in Santa Fe.
0: Must be the Santa Fe. Must be the new Santa Fe. But you just got back from uh, actually looking at and driving some cool cars. So in this podcast, we're going to be talking about the new da-da-da Mustang.
1: Yeah, the new 2024 <laughs> Ford Mustang. I also got some chance to check out the new Kia. EV9, their new game-changing electric three-row crossover. We're also going to be talking about um, some used cars, some great values, some uh, some hot topics in the industry, including fake quarter-mile times. What are we talking about, Dad? It's a big day out here on the TFL Talk podcast.
0: Yeah, so let's talk about uh, the biggest conspiracy in the automotive biz. Well, okay, hang on, Dad. Biggest conspiracy That's ever! V- I think so. Yeah, I think I think we just had this conversation while we were walking the dog, and I don't think people understand or know just how we're being bamboozled by the car magazines and actually some YouTubers. <laughs> well, you know, you know, bamboozled what? is a strong word here. No, well, no, okay. Then we recently did a video where we uh, basically drag raced uh, two Corvettes against a Mustang, right? Yep. And I'm going to read you some of the comments, okay? Uh, weak, weak, weak. I hate when people drive vets, they don't know how to drive. We get that comment like a zillion times. C6 driver needs to learn how to drive. And you know why that is, Tommy? Because when we do our drag racing, we have a little performance
1: timer in the window that tells us our quarter mile times, and they are much slower than a lot of people are anticipating, and there's a bunch of reasons for that. Do you want me to go into the reasons?
0: Yeah, this is the conspiracy, because, look, what happens is... um, The Buff books, I'm talking about Motor Trend, Car and Driver, uh, Road and Track, and Automobile, publish 0 to 60 times, right, Uh, for cars. Uh, And we publish real 0 to 60 or real quarter mile times because we don't do what's called the SAE correction. The SAE correction stands for the Society of Automotive Engineers. And explain the SAE correction, Tommy. Well, what the... They're called buff
1: books in the industry. Yes. They're the, the the traditional magazines that receive vehicles for testing. They put them through a labyrinth of tests, and then they publish their zero to sixty, their quarter mile times, that kind of thing. Um, and uh, what happens is is they run the car over and over and over and over and over, and they try to get the best time possible from zero to sixty. So we're not saying that the all, ma- the, all that is good. Yeah, the, the magazines yeah. do a lot of really great work. Um, A lot of YouTube channels do a lot of really great work, but then where things get interesting is they want to get the gold standard 0 to 60. So they take that final number and they manipulate it based on a set of these correction standards to make it um, basically equal across the board.
0: Yeah, so let me explain. So let's say uh, they're testing a Corvette uh, at sea level, right, Yep. Uh, but it's 100 degrees. Yeah, happens right. So they'll get the
1: number, and then based on the Society of Automotive Engineers, they'll actually tweak the number to um, represent in uh, Motor Trend standards uh, temperatures of seventy-seven degrees, um, a certain air pressure, and then a zero percent humidity. Uh,
0: So what that accomplishes is the tweaking that is it makes the time quicker.
1: Sure. Right. Exactly. Because um, what, what I think a lot of the reasoning here is they want the cars to be essentially um, viewed at in the same, same realm as sea level, good temperature, no humidity. And they feel that by adding these correction factors, you are getting a, a better a metric as to how that, that vehicle is going to perform.
0: Yeah, and the reason we're bringing this up is because this was a topic that Jason Canizmo was talking about on his podcast. And when he does his really excellent videos where he does a drag racing at uh, Big Willow, yep. um, what he'll do is he'll do the same thing. So the numbers that you're seeing him put up are not the actual numbers the car ran. And I'll give you an example. He talked about this in his podcast. When he was doing the testing, it was like 106 degrees or something, right? So he'll run the car and then he'll... Correct the time based on what the SAE correction is. So you can correct for not just um, temperature, but you can also correct for altitude. You can also correct for um, if you've got lower grade gas, right? Sure. Uh, And so all that in effect does is makes the time much quicker. And we don't do any of that. So the number we're giving you is the exact number that the car actually ran on any given day that we're testing it. And we're not saying, well, we're, you know, a mile above sea level, so we're going to lower it by one second because that's what the SAE correction is. And we're going to lower it by another half a second because it's 100 degrees versus 70. What was it you said? Um, What's the standard they use? Motor Trend is 77. Yeah, because it's not 77. And so, thus, we get these comments saying, well, you guys can't drive because people are looking at either the times they ran in their car at sea level or the times that are being published and let's face it, Tommy, these lower times, SAE corrections, also help the automakers. And that's why I'm saying it's a conspiracy theory. Actually, not a theory, a conspiracy fact, because, you know, you can sell a car uh, more likely that's quicker than what it really is, right? And the fact is, and this is, this is going to be hard to swallow, and you guys are going to hate this, but it's true. There is no such thing as what, Tommy? As a real zero to
1: 60 or a real quarter mile.
0: It it depends on the day, on the driver, on the car, on too many circumstances.
1: So um, if I'm looking at the car and driver website right now, um, they talk about their zero to 60 and their quarter mile procedures. And uh, this is from the website here. All of our straight line acceleration um, are a result of the average of the best run in opposite directions to account for wind, that's good. Ambient weather conditions, we record absolute barometric pressure wet and dry bulb temperatures track side um, because of that we also correct acceleration results to 60 degrees Fahrenheit at sea level so that correct part is where things get a little bit dubious now I'm not saying that their testing procedure is wrong right what the SAE correction standard is supposed to do is standardize the results across every car and I think there's a lot of value in that um, but you know, I think there's a lot of value in any kind of 0 to 60 test. R is at a mile above sea level. Um, you know, someone else's that's maybe on an unprepped surface. There's a lot of factors that go into it. And I'll give you an example. The NHRA also has correction standards uh, or factors um, to compensate for altitude for super stock and uh, stock classes. And let's take a, a, an example of this, right? Okay, yeah, let's see. So we've got this... Uh, We've got this C5 Corvette, Mm -hmm. which consistently on our track, which is a non-prep surface at about 6,000 feet above sea level, will run based on our solo DL performance timer, which I think is quite an accurate performance timer. It's it's pretty much an industry standard in a lot of ways. It'll run consistently about a 15.5 in the quarter. And we've run this test over and over and over. Um, And it always gets between like 15.5 and 15.7 at the slow end of things. Now, there's a, a correction factor, a multiplier, that I can I can use to um, correct that number back down to sea level times according to the NHRA standard, and at 6,000 feet, if I go 15.5 seconds and multiply it by .9250, 14.3. So just by correcting for altitude, I've dropped that time about a second and a half. Yeah, and, and, and then if I were to correct for... Temperature, it would be even more than that.
0: And here's the thing: I think a lot of people don't understand that. So when they see that number, right, whether they ran that number at sea level or whether they saw that number in a magazine, and then we come up with a number that's substantially slower, uh, they, you know, in the comments say, "You guys can drive, learn to drive, learn to shift," uh, and I think that's the problem. And that people do not understand that the numbers they're seeing are not the numbers actually the car ran, but they're numbers that have been corrected for the ideal circumstances. So there's a baseline and I understand the value of the baseline, but to me, you know, our logo, our slogan has always been real world reviews and we take that very seriously. Uh, And so what you're seeing is the real number that the car will run. And then, you know, we're seeing implications of this (sighs) fake news, Tommy, I'm going to go fake news. I don't think it's fake news. I'm going to go with fake news. I don't news. think
1: it's fake news because they're 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 trying to correct down to a standard um, for every car across the board, which I appreciate. All right, but but here's my point. I, I, I mean, uh, everyone's number I think is real. You know, your number at sea level is real. Our number at altitude is
0: real. It's just real for the person in that moment. Yes, testing. I it. absolutely agree. But when Jason or the Buff Books post a number, and you know, there's not a big disclaimer. It's either hidden or it's you know somehow mentioned in the podcast that says, by the way, the car did not run this number, but we corrected for it based on you know an arbitrary graph that's put out by the uh, well, Society of think Automotive it's, Engineers. Well,
1: I wouldn't call it arbitrary. They're, they're a society well, look, of engineers. Okay, okay, right, so look, Some pretty smart okay, folks
0: so, in that group so there, Dad. I, I, I use that word on purpose, and I'll tell you why, okay? So car and driver corrects the 60 degrees, right? Mm-hmm. Motor, motor Trend corrects the 77 degrees. They have different corrections. So, so at that point now, we're arbitrary because Motor Trend is going to get slower numbers after the correction than Car and Driver, because Car and Driver is correcting for a colder temperature than Motor Trend is correcting for. You, um, see, you see what I'm saying? Sure. I and, mean, and, and here's where here's where I think it's getting interesting. Uh, and this is where um, I think this is going. Electric cars, even the little Bolt we have, right, are much quicker than internal combustion engine cars. And that is simply because they do not have these factors that influence their acceleration, right? So an electric car doesn't care about air pressure. Would you agree? Uh, It it would. In other words, altitude. It
1: it would. It would get actually quicker at high elevation. Right,
0: because there's less air pressure, so there would be less air resistance. Air density. Air density, yeah. So it it doesn't really care about uh, altitude, in other words. I mean, here's the thing. It doesn't care about octane of fuel, right? Right. Right. It, It doesn't care about, and actually this is also true, uh, driver competency, because we've done enough drag racing of electric cars to know that they're computers, and once you floor it, if you're on the same surface, the, the zero to 60 time, or the quarter mile time will be within like a, not even a tenth, a hundredth of a second, uh-huh. every time ten- you you're on it.
1: You made a good point there. Okay, what's there that? are factors that do affect electric cars. Sure. Traction, still
0: huge. Of course, you know. I'm, I said it on the same surface.
1: Yeah, but that's a, that's a, that's a factor that changes. Sure. Um, state of charge. EVs are- It can, yeah. It, it usually does have a pretty big impact. High state
0: of charge versus low state of charge. It depends on the manufacturer and how the software is set up. Yes, it can, or the temperature of the battery. Right. Sure. Another thing too, as you mentioned, temperature of the drive line. Mach-E GT, for example, derates itself pretty quickly
1: as the driveline heats up. So there's a lot of factors that go into uh, EVs. But the, but the critical
0: ones that really affect, like... I mean,
1: driver uh, skill, right,
0: largely is is, is taken mitigated. out of the equation. Altitude is mitigated. Yep. Elevation is mitigated. Uh, how about this one? Here's another one we failed to mention. The number of gallons of gas in the car. In other words, the weight you're carrying, because, you know, a full electric car weighs the same as an empty electric car in terms of, you know, how much energy it has. So another thing we should talk about, too, um, and... Can I finish this before we move on? So uh, my my point there is that I think um, right now, internal combustion engine cars are suffering in light of electric cars because the numbers that have been put out there are not real. And what I mean real are numbers that real people can run on 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 an everyday basis, right? And so now we're seeing electric cars running very fast times, especially compared to internal combustion times, because the internal combustion engine times that have been out there are not real and are are corrected and are much quicker than most people can get, you know, based on the kind of fuel they're using, based on where they're living at. And I I get this, guys. Everybody says nobody lives at you know, mile above sea level. Well, they do, actually. (laughs) You know, most people live around the coast, but there's hundreds of millions, if not billions of people who live above sea level. So, you know, There's also, I think, this, like, belief that somehow we're outliers here in Colorado, and that's not the case. A lot of people are sitting on very valuable uh, ocean-front property as global warming takes shape here in the mountains. Did you get the joke? You didn't get the joke. I didn't get the joke. Okay, all right. Maybe maybe the people out there did. Anyway, you were going to say, I'm sorry, go for it.
1: Um, Yes. The other thing, too, is that uh, you know, I've, after talking to some people in the industry, yep. I don't know if this is still the case, but it used to be very much the case that the magazines um, would do some pretty extreme things to get the cars to 60 as quick as possible, even if they if that meant damaging the car. Um, you know, I've heard speed stories Speed shifting of them. Speed shifting them, flat shifting them, and, or, or a lot of times, like, neutral dropping in automatic was one way that certain buff books used to be able to get the quickest times.
0: Stuff that would be really, really bad for the car that no consumer would do. Yeah, like, um, give me an example of this. Like, you can, you, if you want to get the fastest you know, zero to 60 time, you rev the balls out of the engine and you slam it into gear, uh, which is very bad for the transmission and the drivetrain. And you repeat that process because, gosh darn it, I want to get, you know, the quickest time. So a hundredth of a second is important. And I don't think any consumer who buys a car and loves a car is going to do that. Um,
1: now, in this article, Car and Drivers said that they don't like flat shift cars. or they, You know, they drive more realistically. What's flat shift? Um, where you don't let off the, um, oh, I see. Where the you throttle off, where, between yeah. shifts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you don't let the well, you don't let the revs drop, basically. Uh, yep. But uh, anyways, I, I don't really think it matters, Dad. I think um, I don't think people are very upset about this. I think you're you're all grumpy because of all the comments, which is true. But that we've been getting the comments now for 13 years about our zero to sixty times, and we're gonna keep getting them for another 13 years, and I'm okay with that. That's just how it goes living up here to my level sea level. I just
0: I just feel like we've been spitting into the wind for a long time and getting blowback. Uh, for something that you know that if people understood what was really being done which is you know put numbers out there that are with a big asterisk and that asterisk unfortunately isn't big corrected then they would understand that the numbers they're seeing us produce in any drag race or in any test, is the actual number that we're getting. So uh, I know this is a hard pill to swallow, Tommy, but there's no such thing as a 0 to 60 time. It depends on the driver, on the car, on the day, on the location, on the weather. Uh, but that's and and, what and the, that's, that's a hard answer. That's what the correction factor is supposed to eliminate. Yeah, but the correction factor is fake. It's not fake. I mean, it's based it's fake. on
1: science. Well, it's based on it, physics. It's, it's
0: not what the car but it's not what the car is running. It's fake. So it's making the manufacturer look good. It's making the buff book look good. But it's not the truth. In my mind, the truth is what the car runs. And if you know, if the hard truth of the matter is that you know, uh, one driver can get it from zero to sixty in five seconds. Another can do it in four point five. Then. Let's be honest about that and talk about what those real numbers are because at the end of the day, when you buy a car, you're never going to approach these numbers because unless you, you know, convince your buddy at the stoplight after you lose the race that then you have to go into the SAE correction and say, even though I lost the race, but really I I, I won zero to 60, you know, two seconds quicker because I'm accounting for uh, barometric pressure and temperature and, you know, the fact that my fuel tank was full, all that to me just seems like great window dressing to sell more cars and a giant conspiracy theory between the <laughs> buff books to make their cars look quicker than they really are. Anyway, that's, that's where I'm at with that. And obviously, I think there are a lot of people who, who have different opinions, and I respect those opinions, but I do disagree with them. Um, I think that all the numbers that we've been seeing are valid. I think ours are valid. I think that the buff
1: book time is valid. I think the Haggerty tests are valid. They're just valid for different reasons because it's more of an art than a science. The art of the zero to 60 in the quarter mile. Um, All right, well, let's move on to something a little bit more interesting. Um, Let's move on to actual car stuff because I was out in California this week and had the chance to drive the new 2024 S650 Ford Mustang.
0: Okay, so um, as you know, we recently bought the S197, which was not the current generation, but the previous generation, we got the 2014, which was the last year of that with the five liter Coyote. um, And of course, uh, the big controversy has been in the newest generation that basically Ford did not develop an entirely new generation of Mustang. I think it's seven now. Is that right? Is that seven? Yeah. Yeah. But basically should have been like, you know, a, a refresh. So did you feel first that it's an all new Mustang and secondly that they've made it a lot better? Let's just jump to the chase.
1: Yeah. I mean, um, So
0: there was a really big shift from our Mustang,
1: which is 2014, to the 15 model year. So from the fifth generation to the sixth generation, a lot of stuff changed, right? The design changed. It went from solder axle to independent suspension, lots of cosmic shifts. Um, For the 2024 Mustang- Cosmetic, or is it cosmic? Cosmic. Oh, I thought you meant cosmetic. No, no, because the the fifth Uh to the sixth was uh, cosmic, um, six to seven, a lot of people are saying is cosmetic. Okay. And let's talk about why that is because yeah. there's a lot of stuff on paper that hasn't changed. So the displacements of both engines are the same. So basically you're saying it's the
0: same five liter Coyote.
1: But they are not saying that.
0: Oh, what's Ford saying?
1: So there's, there's two engines in the new one, the two three yep. EcoBoost and the five liter Coyote.
0: Yep. Now let's talk about the little four cylinder. Yeah, that, that's the, I think that's kind of the overlooked gem of the thing. But people, when you, when you get a Mustang, uh, people want the V8. The four cylinder has undergone a lot of changes.
1: So the same displacement on paper, but it's got a new twin scroll turbo, mm. it's got a new dual fuel injection system, it's got a new um, hot gas EGR system, lots of stuff have changed in the little four cylinder. When you step up to the five liter, they're also calling it a new five liter Coyote, they're calling it the fourth generation. That one I'm a little bit more squidgy on because um, the change that they described to us seemed pretty minor. Like they talked about the new intake system with the dual air boxes, they talked about a revised oil pan, but they didn't seem to be that eager to go into details beyond that. Well, to be, to be fair, that uh, Coyote was pretty sordid to begin with.
0: It's a fantastic engine. Yeah, it's yeah. a fantastic engine.
1: The yeah. five liter is amazing. Yeah. It's also um, the most
0: powerful
1: non-Shelby Mustang ever. I mean, up to 486 horsepower now out of a naturally aspirated 5 liter is amazing.
0: And then if you supercharge it, you know, the world is your oyster. The other
1: reason that people say it hasn't changed is um, because the size of it's the same. So, usually, when a manufacturer comes out with an all new car, mm. uh, you know it's
0: all new because dimensions like the wheelbase have changed. Sure, usually they either make it longer or they make it shorter or they make it wider, but they somehow, taller, right? They, they somehow change the dimensions around to signal that this is an all new car, so you should buy it. Well, the wheelbase is the same on the
1: 2024 compared to the 2023. Now, um, when the car debuted in September of last year, a lot of publications were saying more of a facelift. Ford apparently really didn't like that very much. And they're doubling down on the fact that, that they claim it's all new. And I asked them why, because I was curious, like why are you claiming it's an all new generation? Because to me, um, on the face of it, it kind of looks like the transition that happened in like the late 1990s. Do you remember we had that SN95 Mustang? Yeah. The really blobby one. Yeah. And then sure. it, it kind of got all squared off yes. in like the early 2000s. Yes. Um, that was not considered a new generation. That still is part of the fourth gen. Whereas this one, something kind of similar happened. It was kind of round, and then it became square. Well, I asked him, I said, why is this an older generation? Every body panel's new. So the hood, the quarter panels. Yeah,
0: if you're watching this on YouTube, you can't um, probably, you know... Uh, see, well you can see behind us if you're listening to it as a podcast, you can't see behind us but if you look at it, it's a little bit more like squinty-eyed, so it's a little bit more reptilian in some ways.
1: Well, it's just much more square jawed. Yeah. So a lot lot more angles on this car, right? Yeah. A lot of creases the taillights have this really big crease that kind of throws back to the 67 uh, Mustangs. Um, they also claim every component on the car has been touched so not only have the engines have been touched but the suspensions have been revised, the braking systems have been revised, the chassis dynamics have re- been revised. Um the interior really is going to be the big change. So lots of changes on the interior. They went from that kind of double brow instrument cluster to these two large screens, which take up the the majority of the the, the dashboard. Configurable
0: now. screens. You can actually screens. take the uh, screen and make it look like a Fox Body Mustang. Yes. Which is pretty it's cool. Really,
1: really cool. Yeah. Um, they also gave, gave it like stuff like the 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 drift brake, so you can pull this electronic parking brake. It'll lock up the rear axle, disconnect the drivetrain, allow you to initiate those slides. So uh, I mean. They have changed a lot of stuff. Now, from my perspective, is it new enough over the 550? If I was waiting to buy a 650 over a 550, the 650 definitely get, because it does feel much more modern. If I have a 550 right now, I'm not sure it's different,
0: different enough to, to upgrade, because the car has gotten, gotten pretty darn expensive. So here's my take on that, okay? Well, we've, actually, before I give you my take, I need to talk about the price. So what is a price? Well, I mean, the, the, the starting price is still impressive. It still is very low 30s,
1: mm-hmm. right, for an EcoBoost. Um, but when you start adding options, uh, when you step up to the GT, then all of a sudden you're going to be mid 40s. And the cars we were driving, which were GTS with the Recaro seats and the performance package and the, the performance exhaust, 61 for the coupe. I was driving 66,000 for the convertible. That's a lot of change.
0: Yeah, you know the new car average price is now cracked almost into the 50s. Like I think it's still 48,000. So part of it is, of course, you know the times we're living at. But still, it is a lot of Mustang. The Mustang has always been the everyman um, muscle car, pony car, whatever you want to call it, and it always has been so because it's been reasonably and affordably priced. Uh, and I agree, that's changing. But here's my take on this whole. It's kind of a insider. I'm going to call it. You know, if I say, you know, if I say, tempest in a teapot. You know what that means?
1: I do not know what that
0: means. Uh, it's a hurricane in a teapot. In other words, it doesn't really affect anybody. It's just this, you know, this kind of. Fake news controversy, and I'll tell you why. Okay, uh, because unfortunately, the the other two cars that directly compete with it, and that of course is a Challenger and the Camaro, are both going away. Uh, and so I'm just grateful that Ford has come out with another version. I'm not saying generation, another version of the Mustang, because at this point beggars can't be choosers. Uh, and once upon a time when you could choose between three competitors, now there's only one standing. And I'm going to give the Mustang a lot more leeway because I don't want the Coyote, I don't want the V8 to go away. Uh, And I think there is a chance that even though uh, Dodge has said that the Challenger and Charger twins are going to be electric, I think they're going to bring back possibly, and this is me guessing, a Hurricane-powered one, you know, the straight uh, six. Uh, twin turbo that's in the uh, Wagoneer. Single turbo. Sorry, single turbo. Yep, you're right. Single turbo. I, I think I think that's going to end up in the uh, Charger or Challenger just because if anybody hates electric cars, I think it's the people who buy Chargers and Challengers, <laughs> yeah. you know, the Hellcat fans. For sure. Uh, but that's not confirmed. Uh, so it's pure speculation. But last one standing, you got to give a little bit of a break.
1: 100%. I mean, it's still in 2023. Uh, a manual transmission optional V8 powered um, sports car or, or pony car, right? Which is a huge deal, so yeah, I agree. Even whether or not it's all new or not, it's really cool that Ford has put the investment into this car, which is on its own unique platform. You know, It's not shared with any other Ford in the lineup, so that's an expensive proposition for a company like that to do. And uh, giving it more performance, right? They're still pushing the envelope of what the Mustang can do. Now, from a driving perspective, should we talk about how it drives? Yeah, I was gonna ask you, um, is it better? Yeah, there's a lot of really great things about it. So that Coyote V8 is still one of the most underrated engines, I think, in the industry. What Ford is able to do out of a 5-liter V8, I mean, 486 horsepower, right, is more than what Dodge is able to do out of 6.4 liters. I think that the 6.4-liter SRT engine, right, is rated at 485. Good point. yeah, so, true So they get more power of a smaller displacement. And the darn thing revs to 7,500 RPM. And um, uh, it pulls well into the rev race, so you get a lot of area under the curve for usable power and torque. So it's fantastic just ringing that thing out to near redline.
0: Now, Paul, our race car driver, as we speak, is driving the Dark Horse, uh, and we're going to have a full, I think, both road and track review of it. Now, uh, the question I'm wondering, Tommy, is the Mustang has always been a pony car, which is a nice way of saying uh, it's been more of a muscle car than a sports car, right uh, It's just it's a very heavy car and you put it on the track and, and some of those attributes that make it so great in a straight line also ma- not make it so don't make it so great around a track. Um, and I was actually surprised by the last gen the current generation of GT 500 just how tractable it was uh, but you know do you feel like uh, the car is a sports car or is it still more of a GT straight line? Uh, you know, let's drag race, let's cross a country, but once you put it on a track, all of a sudden that weight becomes, you know, a, 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 not a benefit, but a liability. Well, you've got two flavors of Mustang, really. So you, you've got the non-performance
1: package cars and the performance package cars. Performance package cars give you stuff like um, um, upgraded suspension. It gives you the, the six-piston front Brembo brakes. You get performance tires, um, tours and limited slip diff, all of these things which really kind of transform the character of the Mustang. Um, our cars also had adaptive dampers and MagneRide dampers on them, um, so, so they change depending on the mode. Um, and look, I, I mean, on the road driving it every day, I definitely felt like a sports car. You're like, it's low to the ground, um, the steering ratio is pretty quick, it rides pretty firm. When you bring it into a canyon, it's kind of where things fall apart a little bit because this is a car that, that's knocking on 4,000 pounds, right? Yeah. This is a big car, um, and it's a little bit under-tired, so when you're really pushing it, it does have a tendency to under-steer, and then if you're not careful with the throttle, that rear end will snap around like that. So, um, in a Canyon setting, it wasn't as fun as I was kind of hoping it to be just because of the mass. Um, and in an everyday standpoint, it, it's a it's a fantastic performer. So, uh, the other thing too is our cars that we were driving had the, um, the optional Recaro seats. Mm. And um, I would forego the Recaro seats because even though I'm as thin as a rod, um, they're just tight. It's a tight, oh, tight seat design.
0: Could I could I do my rant now? Another I, rant has been uh, my essay wasn't a rant. Nothing. You're ranting the whole time. That wasn't that was that was, that was just uh, you know. That oh was my cons- goodness! Conspiracy. I'm not going to say fear, conspiracy. Fear, consp- Clim- cons- oh
1: conspiracy my goodness
0: fact. here. Right, hey, maybe maybe I'm just new to this world of performance cars, but uh, the manufacturers have now gone full seat torture device for some reason. I have been in a lot of cars uh, that are track-focused, right, where Mm -hmm. the seat is so ungodly uncomfortable, so ungodly impossible. There's like that that BMW seat, right, the the sports seat, the one that um, is, I think it's carbon fiber. Oh, yeah. With the little... Yeah, that
1: is terrible, with the crotch bolster.
0: Yeah, yeah, You, you will literally, every time you get in and out of it, you will... Get a bruise on the inside of your upper thigh because if you dare put any weight on it, that, that 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 lip of that seat is so pointy and so sharp that it will bruise you. And once you're in them, they're designed for people like Paul, who is what 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 is Paul? Five foot six, five foot 5 <laughs> I don't know. Weighs a hundred pounds. You know, super um, athletic. But they're certainly not designed for people like me, who are six two, who weigh you know well over two hundred pounds. Um, and so BMW has done that. Uh, the Por- I think the Porsche one, their, their carbon fiber seat, is probably the best out of all those. Uh, that's not saying a lot. Uh, and now you're telling me that the Recaros and the Mustang are also pretty, pretty okay. torturous. Well, we should, we should, we should
1: kind of clarify the spectrum of torturous. Because okay. those BMW seats, it, it's like stepping into a baby crib. <laughs> a carbon fiber baby crib. I mean, you can't get in or out of them. It's, it is ridiculous. I don't know who they designed those seats for, and I don't understand the carbon fiber nut guillotine that they've incorporated in that. That's <laughs>
0: that's a good way of putting it.
1: Tickling at your family jewels yeah. every time you get... they ridiculous. The Mustang seats are not nearly that bad, right? Um, but they're still very heavily bolstered, especially around the shoulders. The other thing about the the GT seats is that the, the performance seats completely kill the back seat usability. Um... Well, so yeah, they also I,
0: don't adjust. Right? Yeah, they, they have like yeah, three adjustments on They're more on
1: adjustable than the like the Porsche seats or the BMW seats. You get like up, down, forward, back. Yeah,
0: it's, but, it's but like... These are better than those, now. We should clarify. It's like, I, I get it. On the track, they'll hold you in place. In the canyon, they'll hold you in place. But you know what? I'm going to be driving that car to get milk... Uh, and I need to get in and out of it because maybe I need to stop along the way and fill it up with gas. And, you know, the second you have to use it as anything other than, uh, you know, a racetrack car, because let's face it, on the racetrack, you're going to get it in and out of it once, right? Right. <laughs> right? When yeah, you, yeah, yeah, When yeah. you start the race, when you finish the race. And then if you put it on a trailer and drive it, you know, trailer at home, you're good. But, my God, if you have to, like, daily drive a car with any of those sports seats, just, just, you know... Well, there's a solution. What's the What's the solution?
1: Clear and obvious solution. Don't get the sports. Seats. Don't get the sports seats. Get the standard, comfy seats. And actually, that's the so that's the version of the Mustang I'd recommend.
0: All right, but like I th- I think in like the RS cars of Porsche, I don't think you can get. I think in the GT, you might be able to get the regular seats. But like the GT4 RS I drove, I think oh. it only comes with the sports well, seats. Well, if
1: you're buying an RS car, you're buying a track car. True that. And then that makes sense. Right. But in a Mustang, yeah, get, get the old man But I was,
0: I was in the Lamborghini STO, which is basically a pure track car for the road, and the seats there weren't as tortuous. Mm-hmm.
1: There you go. Yeah, I mean, and even like those track cars, I mean, how many people are realistically tracking um, an STO? Probably not many. Most of those are ending up on uh, in Miami driving down the road. You know, looking cool. So, I, yeah, I, I agree with the seat thing. It's gotten a little ridiculous. That being said, if you do plan on tracking your car, the standard seats are going to be flopping around like a marble in a in a bowl.
0: <sighs> I'm not sure about that. I've tracked a lot of cars, Tommy, including cars I probably shouldn't have tracked. I'm thinking of like the uh, the Bentley Bentega. And, 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 yeah, there are some cars, and they mostly are from the 1970s with bench seats where you're using the steering wheel uh, to kind of hold on for dear life, right? Where It's almost like a cartoon where you're turning the wheel and your legs are flying out the passenger window when you're making a left turn. But for the most part, most sports cars with their sporty-ish seats are perfectly fine on the track. I, I really don't need, like... You know, the the thing on the side of the head that holds you in place in case of an accident. That's like some serious, you know, serious race car stuff there. You wouldn't want the normal Mustang seats on the track. You'd be flopping around. Like I was a, in the GT 500, and what's well, a GT 500?
1: Of course, it's going to have even the standard I, GT 500. And, seats. and
0: as I remember, those were standard seats, and I never felt like I was being flung around the car. Oh well, well, geez, with,
1: Dad, it's a GT 500. And, of course, and,
0: even the standard seats are going to be sporty. And then, then also, obviously, the sport seats have the ability for the five point harness, which is also a track thing, right?
1: So the GT 500 seats, the standard seats, right. are about at the same as the Recaros and the standard Mustang. Um, so, um, I mean, look, the, the standard Mustang seat dad is a, it's a very basic seat, but it's comfortable. And I'm, I'm, so the way I would spec my Mustang is as I was trying to get at All right, all right go for it. Is get the GT, because yep. that 5 liter is a magnificent piece of engineering. So after all this time praising the little turbo. Yeah, you still want the
0: GT. The, <laughs> of course. the
1: turbo's great. It offers a lot of bang for its buck.
0: It offers over 300 you know, horsepower. You know, it doesn't offer great resale. Uh, you know, we were recently buying... Trying to get a Mustang GT, and I can tell you the difference between that straight six that they had. Well, it was a V6, right? The old six-cylinder, 300 horsepower. The difference in resale value is like 50%. It's big. It's yeah. It's big, yeah. Resale's a big deal, but yeah. um, still impressive little engine over 300 horsepower. Sounds pretty cool, too,
1: now if you get the performance exhaust in the four-cylinder. Uh, but get the V8, especially because it's going to be one of the last naturally aspirated V8s on the market. Um, get the manual transmission. You get a fantastic, sneaky little six-speed manual, nice light clutch, but then I would actually forego the performance package and I would forego the Recaro seats. So what do you get with the performance package
0: that you wouldn't...
1: Well, I explained it earlier. So you get um, um, upgraded suspension, you get summer tires, you get the Brembo six-piston brakes, right? It makes it more of a handling car, but even with the performance package, this this is not a car that I would actively be taking on Cannon Roads on the weekend. Get a Miata, um, even get like a Supra for that, right? It's gonna be phenomenal at that, that that job. The Mustang is a great cruiser with an incredible powertrain that'll rock you down the road. Um, uh, so, you know, don't get the performance pack, which is an unpopular opinion, but do get the performance exhaust because when you stick that thing in the loud mode, it just will blow up your eardrums. Um, so that's that's the way I would like to spec my Mustang is a comfy car with the comfy seats. Get the nice interior um, and then just enjoy it straight line blasting down your boulevard
0: looking cool that's the way to spec it and, and, this is and gonna, save some money this is also going to be something that that i think people are going to get mad at me about and this is a you know a, i think we're at a peak performance exhaust right now in terms of decibels and i love it tommy I, I know uh people probably hate the fact that you know when their neighbor has a raptor or i don't know a jaguar f-type i'm just trying to think of the loudest cars or and a lamborghini STO and starts it up at five in the morning it's going to wake up the whole neighborhood but I just love the fact that the, uh, many performance cars now have very loud exhaust. Now, that's hard for you know the person following you, but it's certainly fun when you're the one in the driver's seat. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think we're at kind of the peak decibel level right now. I don't think it can get any louder because some of these cars, and that includes the Raptor that we have, our long-term Raptor, they are so gloriously loud uh, that they just put a huge smile on my face. And I think that may be just a direct... Uh, a direct correlation to the fact that, um, you know, electric cars are coming and they're so quiet. So people with um, traditional V8s want to let the world know and I'm all for it.
1: Um, Yeah, I agree. I think that the, 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 the cars are as loud as they're going to get. You know, we have new noise regulations, and trust me, you hear the performance exhaust on this Mustang in the loud mode, and there's going to be no part of you that wants a um, uh, a louder car because it's it's got the the baffles on the exhaust which can open and close the what, valving.
0: You know what I think is I, well, I think like prove if you, you could prove it, the 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 Lamborghini Sto is the loudest car out there. It's too loud for most racetracks. I want to say it's like a hundred and. Don't quote me on this but 125 decibels but in terms of like you know non supercars w- that we've tested what do you think is the loudest car that we've tested uh, I I know I know I know the answer but what's your answer I mean I
1: would I would imagine the Mustangs probably up there
0: it's super loud think about the Cadillac um yeah the V Escalade the, V is the Escalade very, very loud Escalade V is Everything you want. My favorite a V8 to be. story of that though is a
1: guy in the Elantra N in California who yeah. got the fix-it ticket for his exhaust being too loud, yeah. and it was a stock exhaust. And then he had to go to war with California over the exhaust system, and he had to get Hyundai involved. Um, yeah, I, I think that we've got some of the best the best sounding cars on the market right now.
0: But you know, and I, I see the downside of that, having spent many my, many nights in downtown LA. You know, it sounds like you're at the Indy 500 at two in the morning, right? Right. (laughs) Uh, But uh, if you're, you know, if you're not trying to sleep and you're the one driving the car, it's glorious. The other thing too, I should mention is if you get the performance pack, you get the drift brake. Oh. Which is kind of cool.
1: So I loved, so they had a little demonstration for us.
0: I heard a lot of drifting in the
1: video. With the drift brake, yeah. So, um, and they actually had the RTR guys, and I got to work with Chelsea, who's a, a gentleman who's one of the leading drifters in the country right now who helped develop the drift brake. And it's really cool, because you accelerate, we accelerated down this little, little stretch of road, you yank up on the handle, it locks up the rear wheels instantly, And it's not like you need a lot of mic to do it because it's electronically assisted. And then the second you let it go, you can get on the throttle and you can do these beautiful, nice drifts and these great pirouettes. Um, Really precise, adds a lot of fun to the car. My big thing about that, though, is I cannot think of a time where I'd be able to use it. You know, because if you use it on the public road, you're going to hurt somebody or get arrested. Mm-hmm. If you use it in a parking lot, security is going to be called. And I've never really thought about entering a drift event because you you end up going through tires like crazy and it's pretty hard on the car. So I'm not really sure when I would use the drift brake. And then all the comments are, of course, like, well, this is just going to be a problem for cars, leaving cars and coffee. Um, so it's a cool thing. I appreciate that they do it. They're really reading their audience, right? Because I know a lot of Mustang fans are into it. Not super into the drift brake. I don't... Just see a use for it.
0: Yeah. Uh, so my experience was the exact opposite. I was in Vegas in a parking lot on the uh, Kia EV6 GT program. It has a drift mode. Yep. Uh, and we were we were given like ten or twelve opportunities to try to drift it around the parking lot. Mm-hmm. Really hard to. So the way they do it is uh, they you know they make it more rear wheel bias because it's an all wheel drive car. Right. Uh, and then they basically use the torque of the electric motor to overcome uh, the traction. And so if you do it right, you can do this beautiful four-wheel drift. Uh, I could not do it after 12 attempts. So very hard. uh, And I don't know. I would would say it's my bad driving skills, but everybody that was there was having the same problem. Basically, what happens is you you do one of two things. Maybe this corrects it. So you go into the drift, and if you punch it too much, you do basically, you know, you kind of spin the thing around. You do a 180, Mm. and the drift ends in a kind of a violent shaking motion. Or if you don't give it enough throttle in that car, you never actually initiate the drift and you basically do kind of a, a, just a very sharp turn.
1: Well, so the difference there is that you're trying to initiate a power slide yes. by overwhelming the traction yes. of the rear tires. Yes. This is this is like, a, this is a handbrake turn. Yeah. So it locks a up the rear turn. tires. No, not a J-turn. It turn. could be a J-turn. I mean, you, I don't, well, I'd assume you could do a J-turn, but this is just like locking up the rear tires to get the back in the skid, basically. Um, And that was really easy. So everybody out there was having fun with it, and it was was really cool. Like yeah, it's fun to use and it's a fun little demonstration. It's just would I be able to use that in the real world? I don't know if I have an opportunity to use it.
0: All right, well let's transition to the uh, car um, that you saw, and now we're gonna go electric. uh, Last night, tell me about where you went and tell me about what you saw.
1: Yeah, so Kia flew me out to studio in LA to check out the new EV9, which has been revealed for some time now. But this is their new fully electric crossover SUV, but unlike most, this is a big guy, right? This is a three-row, Palisade-sized crossover SUV. And um, what I love about Kia and Hyundai, we were talking about this at breakfast this morning, is the designers seem to basically have free reign of the place. They can do whatever they want, whenever they want, and their designs are just, they're, they're flabbergasting. Some of the new stuff coming out of Hyundai and Kia, I mean, they look like concept cars that are making it into production.
0: They are concept cars that are making it into production. <laughs> and they are, that's true. That's a great point. And, and you know, what's amazing um, is just how quickly they're actually going into production on these. You know, you compare... Well, let's compare it to two other, you know, highly bombastic designs, right? The Cybertruck, which has been stalled. I mean, I know they built one, supposedly. Uh, it looked like, by the way, the doors are off on it in that picture where <laughs> it's surrounded by all the team. Yeah. Uh, so that's been what four years, and the other one that's also been forever, probably six years, is the ID. Four, which in a way directly competes, you know, with with it. So uh, I'm amazed that both Hyundai and Kia uh, can come up with these great designs. Uh, and interesting drivetrain components and interesting ways of, you know, reinventing the automobile and actually produced a vehicle without, you know, four years five-year or six-year delay.
1: That's amazing. I mean, since the time the Cybertruck was debuted to the world, Honda has shown and introduced and sold the Ionic 5, the EV6, the EV9s going on sale this winter. Um, and that's not to mention all of their gasoline cars, like the Palisade and the Telluride and the Kona and the, uh, the, the, the Santa Cruz and all these crazy designs.
0: Um, yeah, but- here's the, here's something, right? in the, you know, I remember when the uh, ID buzz came out, right? And I know it's available in Europe. We don't get it here in America, but I'm talking about America, right? Because that's where we live. Mm-hmm. In the time that it has taken Volkswagen to bring the ID Buzz to America, I think in less time, the, um, the Stinger GT has been shown, built, bought, and discontinued.
1: Yes, that's <laughs> probably true. They're probably not
0: far off that timeline there. It's true. Yeah. Uh,
1: that's I, a good car. I'm, I'm not picking on some crappy car. That's a good car. No, it was great. I mean, um, the thing that I think is really interesting, especially with Hyundai... Um, and I had a chance to talk to their head of design, as you did, yeah. in, um, when I was in, yeah, he's a great guy. in London a couple weeks ago. Well, the head of
0: design is Korean, but he's like the... He's a design manager. Yeah, he, the design he, manager. He's he, the guy the, putting the, the British pen Scott. in the paper. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. really nice gentleman. Um, I think his name is Scott. Well, um, uh, I think
0: it's Scott, but anyway, go ahead. Okay. I can't think of it right now.
1: Well, my, I'm not good with names. Yeah. But the, what's interesting, so if you look at like the progression of most designs, especially if you look at the German designs, Right like a five series from 2005 to, to, to the next generation, to the next generation, there's clear and obvious lineage between all the generations of five series. And you can see that across the board from everything from like the Accord, right? The Accords, they change, but they look sort of similar to the previous generation. But then if you compare that to like the Hyundai Sonata, or especially now the Hyundai Santa Fe, every generation of Hyundai and Kia specifically Hyundai products, is entirely new. It's like they throw away the old design altogether and come out with something that's just off the wall, off the wall crazy. Um, Like look at the new Santa Fe, which was debuted. The old one, you know, looked pretty good. It's kind of a standard round-dish SUV. The new one looks like a G-Wagon, right? It's square. It's perfectly boxy. It looks like a G-Wagon slash a Scion XB. Same thing with the Sonata. Every time they come out with a new Sonata, it's like they just threw away the drawing board and bam, you got a new car.
0: I I can't find him. I interviewed him. I apologize. He's a great guy. So I was looking, I was trying to find find his name. Uh, Obviously, they just hired uh, uh, Luke, uh, well, Peter that you know, came out of Audi, but he's he's kind of took a, took a step back. Uh, Luke uh, Dunker volca right? He's their um, head of design, I think, for Genesis. Uh, so he came from uh, uh, he came from Bentley, and and, and I hear that, that, that Hyundai just has you know a ton of money to throw at these people. The, 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 that, that's him. You're looking at the video now. Join here. Let me get the yeah, get, get his name. Get his name. Yeah.
1: Simon. Simon!
0: Sorry, Simon. Uh, yeah. Anyway, I, I've heard that at Hyundai, if they want somebody, they offer you so much money that you can't say no. And and the results are, you know, speak for themselves. Well, they had Albert Bierman, right? Who was the um, head he's, of M. He's the head of M at BMW who's now doing their N. chassis design.
1: Well, he no, he was at N for a while. Which he, he he spearheaded the end end development, right, but, but he came from M. It's confusing. And yeah, he, he came from M. And now he's kind of he's taken a step back. It's Hyundai he's, N. He's he's retiring. Yeah, but he's still contracting with them and, and helping them with their, their movement forward. Um, but yeah, it's funny because you go to the Hyundai N programs and like all of the engineers are German, right? The, the the guys The guys that are doing not all of them, but the vast majority that you meet are going to have a really thick German accent.
0: But you know, hate it or love it, and I love it. Their design is certainly uh, groundbreaking, innovative, and unusual, uh, and they're not building the same old mousetrap, which you know I applaud them for. Uh, and I think the results speak for themselves. You know, with everything from the Ionic Five, you know, which has gotten just rave reviews around the world, uh, all the way to some of the Genesis products, which you know are redefining luxury for a long time. The Germans have defined it now. Genesis is doing it. That's a very long. An uphill battle, but they 're somehow managing it uh, so in, in the last few minutes that we have left let 's talk about a design I think doesn 't get enough cred, uh, and that is a car that you just purchased from the company, which is uh, the Chevy corvette i i have you know since we've been kind of in the Corvette world, I have noticed just how much i'm um, going say it hate you know uh, the 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 Europeans give to Amer- one of america's best and i think most advanced uh, Uh, sports cars. Well, I don't even think it's just Americans now. I think that there's a lot of Americans
1: that really don't give, especially older Corvettes, the credit that they deserve. you know, if if there's one car right now that I think is having its moment in the light among enthusiasts, mm-hmm. it's the Porsche 911. Yeah, for you know, sure. Every generation of air-cooled 911 to the new water-cooled stuff, right? Like, there's just so much excitement. It's like uh, the
0: world discovered the 911. I mean, the world always knew about the 911. Right, but, but not, just
1: like within the last couple of years, that's like, oh, the it's, halo It's car. the it car, yeah. And the prices are through the roof, and you can't get a Singer for years, and they are millions of dollars, and people are paying obscene, stupid money. Um but uh, and I think that that mentality that the Europeans have built superior cars um, permeates through a lot of the car community, um, and, and there's just like a lot of snobbery, especially around brands that manufacturers like BMW and Mercedes. They, they build a far superior product on the sports cars performance side of things than what um, Ford or General Motors or or Chrysler can do. Um, and and I think that the the one car that is a perfect example of that is the Corvette because. Um, The perception of a lot of American performance cars is great in a straight line, big V8 power, cheaply made, bad interiors, can't go around turns, can't stop, poor handling. And for a long time, that was very, very true. But especially starting in 1984.
0: The Mustang, too, certainly exemplified that. Well, yeah. I
1: mean, in all the muscle cars (laughs) of the 70s and even a lot of like...
0: Sure. I mean, the Barracudas of the world were not great but around a corner. A
1: lot of that is still true with the, the Challenger Hellcat, right? right. right? Yes. They've, they've done amazing things to make that car handle, but it's
0: still a straight-line performance car. Sure. Um, but it's also built on a German chassis.
1: Well, don't. It's not built on a German chassis. <laughs> that, no, I've talked to the Dodge engineers. That is a myth which has gone well, okay, back so far. So, so,
0: so there are two myths there, right? We can talk about them. Uh, and you can call them real or you can call them myths. So that the... That the, you know, Mercedes was the original chassis for the Charger Challenger twins. And, of course, uh, that the Viper started out with a truck engine. The well, big V10 was a truck engine. The,
1: all of those are kind of wrong. I mean, so the hard points, the, the they're, basic they're, they're architecture wrong right, yeah. between the Dodge and the Mercedes is fairly, fairly Close, But I've talked to the engineers and they say that the car has evolved and changed so much. I mean, there's no Mercedes left in it, right? The basic rear suspension architecture, an engineer told me, could be fairly related.
0: But all the components are different and it's so far removed at this point. When, When the Viper last generation was still alive, I, same thing, I talked to the engineers and they said that that's so far, that 10 cylinder is yeah, so far moving. Even from the truck Gen 1 engine. engine wasn't, there was, there's no truck engine in It the does
1: Gen sound one kind of trucky. It does sound trucky, but yeah. there's not a lot, because they don't use an Xbox. Exp- anyway, I, anyway so Corbat. what I'm going with is there's a lot of snobbery that the Germans know how to build performance cars better than, than the, the Americans. Or the Brits. Aston Martin. Yeah, the Brits, I think, it have some of that, but it's mostly. Jaguars. Anyways, and, and case case deals with this a lot too with this Corvette. Um, but you know the amount of of handling prowess you get from a C5 or a C6 Corvette for fifteen, even a C4 Corvette for ten, fifteen, twenty five thousand dollars. You can't beat
0: it. It's out of this world. That same generation of Porsche nine eleven will cost you fifty thousand. Oh, 100 percent. Yeah, it, it'll and it won't perform. And we'll do this test. It won't perform any better. Well, so like if I was comparing a ninety nine
1: Corvette C5 Corvette to a ninety nine. 911, 996, we've owned both. We had the 99 911, the black one, if you recall. Back then it was cheap, now they're expensive. A 99 911, a good one, manual transmission coupe is probably gonna run you 25. um, 30, where a a 99 Corvette's gonna run you 15, right? For a good one. Um, You get 345 horsepower in the Corvette. It's quicker, much quicker in a straight line. You've got a much wider platform with a much lower design because you practically sit on the ground in the Corvette. You get just as sophisticated a suspension, you get wider tires, you get bigger brakes, and you get a car that weighs 3,200 pounds, something like that, 3,400 pounds. Um, And it's it's a magnificent handling car too. It's not just an impressive car in a straight line. The way that that car goes around turns will blow your mind, right? Um, And a lot of people completely discount that, plus, it's got a pushrod V8, which is another thing Germans are constantly hating on. But they go on forever. An LS1 V8 or an LS3 V8 or an LS2, they'll go 250,000 miles before needing anything. The electronics are simple. Um, the interiors are bad. That's true. They are made out of the same stuff that they make Happy Meals toys out of. But the plus side of that is they hold I think, up
0: I think you really your, well. I think you put your finger on it. I think um, the engineering behind the car is exceptional. And for some reason, GM... Decided that the one place they were going to scrimp and save is the place that you see and touch the most, which is the interior. So it belies the fact that the car is so well sorted. And I think the Europeans are finally with the latest generation of Corvette because, of course, they put the engine where it's supposed to be, and that's you know mid-mounted as opposed to front-mounted. So now the the the, the Europeans are grudgingly like, oh, the Z06 is the you know highest naturally aspirated horsepower car you can buy. They're like trying to, they're just trying to figure out that you're getting these huge performance bargains compared to the European competitors, right? The the, the amount of performance, and that's really what it comes down to, right? The amount of performance you're getting out of a used or new Corvette compared to Lamborghinis, Ferraris, let's go, you know, let's go supercar, Porsche is almost identical at a tenth of the price. Hey, well, if not better in some way it depends on the model, of course, you know if it's yeah. the Z06 versus a standard one
1: But I, I think we especially see that divided in the used market like if you compare Let's compare the car we just bought which is not a particularly desirable Corvette the 2006 C6 Corvette
0: but I think right? the C6 is desirable. You're saying the later ones were more They're desirable, more desirable yeah. but, but the C6 itself look is at, desirable. So look
1: at that car about 34,000 miles yep.
0: maintenance history Z51
1: Z51 manual transmission 400 horsepower $25,000 now compare that to a 2006 um, Ferrari, no, California, yeah, or or 911, Carrera sure, S, yeah, right. A 911 Carrera S from 06 is sure. going to run you about 50 grand. So it's going to be about double the price for the same mileage.
0: And a Ferrari is going to run you probably 150 grand,
1: um,
0: right, for that same era. It's going to be three times as much.
1: Uh yes, yeah, yeah. Um, so and I mean, the the car of that era is going to run. So if you compare the 911 Carrera S, it's probably going to be, what, 350 horsepower? So You've got 50 less horsepower. You've got a much more expensive car to maintain. You've got a car that I think handles just as well as the Porsche, if not even a little better. Those C6s are fantastic. Limited slip diff. And it's going to be super cheap to keep on the road. The, 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 the problem that the Corvette runs into is, I think, a problem that has been permeated and made so popular by Jeremy Clarkson. Right, because the Brits especially look at the Corvette in a lot of cases as being a fiberglass kit car with the crappy interior and a rear end that flexes when you push in on the bumper. That was that famous shot, right, where he pushes on the bumper and it flexes. And then it can become like, oh, look, the car isn't very made very well. But the point is the cars are simple, right? Just because the bodies are plastic, a lot of ways an advantage. They
0: don't rust. Well, right? I'm, I'm saying if, if Ferrari did that, right? Uh, actually, they did. Well, if uh, I did that, it'd Lam- it Lambert would be lightweight. Lamborghini in the Countach did a Superleggera, right? A uh-huh. super light one. And the metal was so thin that my friend Victor, who has one, says, don't you dare even push on that car because you'll push right through the metal. Which is and, ridiculous. And unlike the Corvette, when you push through the super Superleggera Countach, uh, you're going to have to spend you know, tens of thousands of dollars fixing it, whereas with the Corvette, it just pops right back. Right. But, uh- that, but that all belies the fact that, you know, uh, so here's the thing Tommy sometimes quality uh, uh expresses price but sometimes price expresses quality, even if the quality is not there. It's mm. like it's like Red Bull, right? I think the founder of Red Bull, who recently passed away, somebody asked him once, "Well, why is Red Bull so expensive?" And he's like, "Well, how else would people know it's, you know, quality? It's good, right?" Right. Uh, and so with the Corvette, uh, because it's not expensive in comparison, people just don't think the quality is there, the performance is there, the engineering is there, even though it's all there. But Uh, Because it's living in a much different market. And let's face it, America is the most competitive car market in the world, right? Uh, It has to be a lot less than, you know, a Ferrari and Corvette, you know. And until recently, most American car companies have known that you don't make money by not selling cars. Whereas, you know, Ferrari and Porsche... Have decided that you can make more money by not selling cars for some mysterious reason, uh, but that doesn't work when it comes to, of course, like the Cayenne or the, um, you know, the, their SUVs. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, whereas with Ferraris, because they're such a low volume, uh, the profit on each car is is very high. But still, you know, an incredible amount of profit won't make up for selling five million Mustangs. You just make a lot more money and you get a lot quicker, bigger by selling more cars even though you're making less profit. And I think we're going to return back to those days where I was just listening to um, Spike's podcast, right? Mm-hmm. And he was interviewing uh, a guy from Volvo and they were talking about, well, pe- they want people to pre-order the XC30, the new little electric car they're doing. Yep. Uh, it gives them a chance to not have to wait. And I'm like, uh, that's not going to work. That car is not going to be that desirable where like, you have to pre-order it in, 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 you know, to get in line just to buy it. Those days are over. The world has moved on. So, Volvo, if that's your strategy, you're going to have a lot of them sitting on lots uh, with for sale signs. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. I'm not saying it's a bad car. I'm just saying that strategy is not going to work for a Volvo. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that the times are shifting quickly. Um, but, anyways, that was my little Tommy rant. That, that was a good rant, Tommy. The Corvette deserves more love. In the older ones, the C8 finally, they put the engine in the back and they made the interior beautiful, and it's gotten expensive, but it, you know that's the car that I think the European defender, like wow, this thing's really cool. Not all Europeans though. But uh, the older stuff is really cool too, and you can get it for so much cheaper. The other thing I want to point out about those interiors is yes, they are cheaply made, they use cheap plastics, but they've held up super well. And the interiors that the Europeans would fawn over with Alcantara and suede and the old BMWs and Audis. Check out what Alcantara does after 15 years. You it's know, pretty terrible.
0: I have seen very few American cars where the uh, roof liner starts to sag. And yet that is a thing in so many European yeah, cars. right. Uh, and uh, speaking of cheap interiors, remember when we had the uh, Volkswagen Beetle, the second generation? Sure, that interior Carmel. in Florida just melted. It literally melted. It turns like, to crayons. It literally, yeah. You could just, It just starts to melt. Like the petroleum just starts to leach out of it. Uh, and yet this Corvette is doing very, very well. Hey, um, in the last uh, couple of minutes that we have left, why don't we talk about our new series that's coming up, our cheap Jeep series? Yeah, that's right. So we went out and bought three affordable Jeeps um, uh,
1: um, that weren't Wranglers. We went to auction and, and you, Nathan bought one and Andre bought one and then I I bought a third one, and then we we did a baseline test, where we took them off-road, see what they did as we purchased them, and then we we worked with Falcon Tire, we got some new tires on them, we changed the wheels, um, changed some suspension stuff, did some modifications to the Jeeps, and then we brought them to Moab, Utah to see which one was best, and how much fun you can have for a Uh, fairly small amount
0: of money. uh, Dare I say the hottest day of the year. (laughs) 106 degrees in Moab, Utah, (laughs) filming that video. You know, I had never been to uh, Moab in the middle of summer, and... I was amazed at how many people are not there. (laughs) Yes, most people are smart enough not to go out when it's 106, so we were the only idiots out there. Yeah, we we had, I think, one side-by-side that came by the trail, otherwise (laughs) otherwise nobody, and there were some Jeeps uh, at the trailhead with their windows closed and their air conditioning on. That was it. That was it, 100%, but we had a
1: ton of fun filming the series, so that series is going to debut over a TFL car starting in August. So we've got the first video coming the first Saturday in August, which I'm really excited to bring you guys and show you. It was a lot of work, but I think it was a fun little series we got going on there. It's going to be four four parts.
0: Four parts plus a bonus episode. Plus a little bonus episode, exactly right. And thanks to Falcon Tire, Wild Peaks for providing us with... Uh... You know, the biggest difference you can make to any off-roader, and that is the tire. Yeah, great. You know, we
1: had a great experience with the Falcon tires. They really
0: um, impressed me off-road. We got three different types of tire, too, that they sent us, so we could kind of show the mild terrain versus the all-terrain versus the mud terrain. And and then last thing I want to point out, and this is happening next week or the week that you're listening to this because we are recording this a little bit early, but next week you're going on a really cool program. Uh, Toyota has confirmed... Uh, that they are unveiling uh, the new Land Cruiser on August 1st. Yep, so I'm going to you'll Salt be there. Lake at the Heritage Museum, hopefully bring you some other cool videos of some
1: older Land Cruisers, which I'm excited to show you. But yes, we're going to be there for the uh, new Land Cruiser
0: yeah that's one of my uh, one of my certainly uh, most exciting and intriguing new cars of the year I can't wait and I'm kind of jealous of you Tommy that you're going to go on that
1: I'm really excited yeah so big thank you to Toyota for inviting me out we'll take a look at that see if it's cool see if it's not I'll let you know the truth it's gonna be cool uh, it looks pretty cool in the pictures I'm a little skeptical on some stuff the GX
0: but... the new GX is cool and this is what I assume it's gonna be based this on
1: this is why I'm going because I go in skeptical okay you go in like going in with my <laughs> my detective's hat on we're gonna find out if they did it right
0: I, know there's a new 300 out that's not available in America we're gonna get a different version of it but the nameplate the classic nameplate lives on and that's a great thing
1: yep so guys let us know what you think in the comment section below
0: yep and uh, let us know uh, if indeed uh, this SAE correction is something that you were aware of because until recently until you know Jason brought up in his video actually his podcast I was not aware of this and I've been doing this my whole life so maybe I had my head in the sand uh, uh, maybe it's new to me, but I'd love to know if you guys have uh, been aware of this uh, because I think it's uh, I think it's eye-opening. Yep, guys, thanks for watching. We'll see you in the next one. Ciao.